This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager. And joining me today, as always, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And today is a precipitous day because we are moving from the first half of the Gospel of Mark to the second half of the Gospel of Mark. And that means, as to, in terms of our focus, we're shifting from identity to mission. Well, we're going to be talking about the mission of Jesus and watching him in action and you know, understanding how we need to sort of get on board with that. Uh, and that means we're also coming to uh, Mark chapter 9, which begins with one of the most unusual events anywhere in the New Testament. Um, it's mm-hmm. the transfiguration of Christ. Sam, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of uh, ironic things about this. The first is that this is basically what all these unbelievers, the Pharisees and the scribes, had been begging him to do. Mm-hmm. Please show it's your glory. True. Show your power. You know, show us the thing that we can go, it's Yahweh, you know, that kind of thing. And he's like, no way. I'm not giving you a sign. And then as soon as he's away from them, he goes, Peter, James, John, come on, I'm going to show you something. And <laughs> up they go. And then we have to ask ourselves the question of, why did he do it for them? You know, and, you know, I have some thoughts on that. I don't know that they're, they're good thoughts. Um, I did study notes this week. Kind of without reading a whole ton of commentaries. It was more just, what did I see when I read the passage? So there's a whole lot of Markisms in it. Um, <laughs> and a lot less of the, what did the, uh, what did the well-known scholars think? But, uh, let's get started. And, and first thing I wanted to mention is chapter nine, verse one. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Uh, what's your opinion on that? I think that's actually the last bit of chapter eight rather than the first bit of chapter nine. Yeah, it's totally the the context of it's totally with chapter eight. Right. Uh, because he's just talked to them about what to expect and he's told them, you know, you've got to take up your cross and carry it every day and and all of that. And he's he's saying, you know, this is what you can expect as a life of a believer. And then he says, I'm telling you some of you standing here won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Right. And then it leads right into the transfiguration. And so this, this verse, nine, chapter nine, verse one is kind of holding both of those things. You know, he's holding the previous chapter with one hand and the transfiguration with the other. Because when he says some of you standing here won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming with power. Well, all of them die before the second coming. And a lot of people have puzzled over this and said, oh my goodness, well, all of them died before Jesus brought the kingdom of God and came with power, you know, with judgment and everything else. Right. But he does take Peter, James, and John to a mountain and he shows them the great glory that emanates from him. And they see the glory of God uh, coming with power and Christ on this mountain and they will see the the resurrection and the ascension. And so this crew is going to get taste of the power of God 
mm. um, long before they die. And the first very clear taste of it is the transfiguration. So you think this is a, is a reference to the transfiguration? Yeah, I think okay. it, I think it's transfiguration. I think it's probably resurrection. Um, I, I think it's Pentecost, where the Spirit comes upon them. Um, so there's there's going to be stages where the power of God is poured out upon His people right. um, before they die. Right. Yeah, I'd always heard it as I think that the theory I heard most was Pentecost. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about the the kingdom of God coming, the Spirit coming to live within us. That that's when the kingdom of God is within us, um, and each of us believers uh, individually. So um, that's always how I've kind of heard that one taught. But it doesn't, you know, there, it's obvious that the transfiguration is is something of a big deal uh, because they're getting to see him revealed in his full glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet not even, and I don't know that it was necessarily his full glory. It's like I still have a feeling he held something back yeah. just because I imagine that for him to be revealed in his full glory, he'd have to like, you know, give them some goggles or something. You know, <laughs> the mountain would have melted. Yeah, yeah that would be a, that would be a little much. So, uh, verse two, chapter nine, verse two. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Um, I think that it's interesting that that the the clothing becomes the thing that really captures the attention. Like his clothing becomes intensely white. I'm picturing that it's not even, it's not even a reflected white anymore. It's like he's giving off light. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yet he was still recognizable to them. It's like, it, that's Jesus. You know, there's no point where you're like, who's the 40 foot tall guy where Jesus used to be? Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, any thoughts about the clothes becoming radiant? Yeah, I think it goes back to, you know, kind of a theme that Jesus is hitting on in these last couple of chapters where, you know, you remember Jesus making a point that it's not what's, you know, outside of a man that makes him unclean. It's, it's what's inside. Right. And here you have a human being who's not reflecting the brightness of something else. Uh, you know, other gospels say his face is shining like the sun and his clothes are bright, like intensely white, shining is the idea. And you see him emanating glory. It's not that he's reflecting some, something else. It's what's actually inside him that is radiating outward. Um, that That's interesting. It's like saying he is the source of glory. He is... Uh, the one that it's just pouring out of. Yeah, I mean, it was his humanity that 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 layer of skin <laughs> that was keeping mm-hmm. that from us. I mean, what he did here was just for a moment, you know, peeled back the mask. You know, said, "Okay, let me show you what I what I really am." Um, and he's this intense point of light, this this place of of complete holiness. Um, mm-hmm. So I I do think that the uh, you know, it ha- essentially what they were seeing was what was radiating from him, uh, because mm-hmm. every description we have of Jesus um, in the Book of Revelation, for example, talks about his glory. That that there's just that he's just surrounded by glory, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that 
that's what they were seeing here. What does surrounded by glory looks like? It looks like radiant like the sun, intensely white. It's this beautiful, intense light and radiance. Um, mm-hmm. And this is, uh, to, a, to a first century Jew who's familiar with the scriptures, this takes you right back to the days of Moses, who was up on a mountain having a conversation with God, and he would go up normal, but he would come down actually kind of with this glowing radiance, and he would have to put a veil over him because he'd been in the presence of God. And yet, here's Jesus on a mountain, and it's, and it's not that some other being is making him radiant. He right. is radiant on his own, which right. is telling you who is he. Right. You know, he is God. He yeah. is the one who is shining out this radiance. Um, and so it's a nod to uh, the days of Moses as well. It's showing you he is the God of Moses. And verse 4 tells us that, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So mm-hmm. here's another example of, you know, because there's people that debate, hey, what's, what is heaven going to be like anyways? Are we going to recognize each other? Are we going to know each other when we're on the other side? And I would say that based on this, the answer is absolutely yes, uh, mm-hmm. because the disciples recognized Elijah and Moses. Yeah, there's something distinctive about them right? and the way they appear. I mean, they never met Elijah. Elijah lived you know, almost 900 years before the apostles and Moses more than 1,400 years before right. the apostles. And yet when they look, they know um, – there, there's something about their appearance and what's what's fascinating in the commentary. These are the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, the ones that were most famous, the ones that had most to do with, you know, being involved in stories of redemption. You know, other prophets wrote about what was coming, but these guys were active in, in leading God's kingdom building on earth. And Moses was known for giving the law. And Elijah is known as one of the more powerful powerful prophets. And so alongside Jesus, you have two figures that are known for the law and the prophets. And so it's, it's a nod that says, you know, back in the day, that's the way that they referred to the scriptures. It was the law and the prophets. And so here you see Jesus, who's having the endorsement of the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Yeah. Is the idea. And you know that it had to be an intimidating sight um, mm-hmm. because you're seeing things that obviously you're seeing people that aren't living you know, on earth anymore. They've come back to talk with Jesus. You're seeing Jesus revealing his glory to you. These are overwhelming things to see. And Peter in verse 5 begins to babble. Uh, and, <laughs> and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Um, <laughs> so the disciples were obviously rattled by what they were looking at. What is the significance of the tense, do you think? Yeah, I love that Peter doesn't know what to say, so he just talks. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he just opens That's his mouth. amazing. He's like, we got to say something, guys. Yeah. Uh, I so relate to this guy. Anyway. Um, when it, when he says, let us make three tents, that's one of the more, that's such an encouraging statement about what is in store for us in the days to come. Because you have Jesus, and it tells us that he's shining like the sun. The other gospels will tell us that Moses and Elijah are also radiant. And when Peter looks at the three of them, and he sees Moses and Elijah that that in some sense are sharing 
in the glory of Jesus, he says we need to build tents for all of them. And if you hear tents, you might skip right past this, but it's the same word in the Greek that is used for tabernacles. And so what what Peter is saying is, oh my goodness, there's Jesus. And of course, he's definitely worthy of a tabernacle. That's the, the portable tent where God's glory dwelled in the Old Testament. But he attributes the same sense of sacredness to Moses and Elijah, because they had, they also had been transfigured into glory to where when Peter looked at them, he sees creatures that are so absolutely transformed into beauty and radiance and glory that he says they deserve tabernacles too, which is the wrong thing to say. But it's really amazing that when Peter looks at them, that's his first instinct. These are divine creatures. There's something about them that is way beyond mere humanity. And the reality is they look that way because Jesus died for them. He's redeemed them. And when they come back into some sense in this world, they're they're radiant and also glorified to the point where Peter's like, oh my gosh, it's they deserve, you know, a divine dwelling place too. And the reality is that's not because they were good enough or they earned it. It's because they belong to Christ, as do you. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember Lewis, C.S. Lewis said something like if you could meet the the most boring person in this life into in glory you would be tempted to fall down and worship them that's the way the bible describes the saints in heaven transfigured and that's what's going on with Moses and Elijah here hmm. and they were already terrified and it got no better for them because what <laughs> happens next is it says, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. That's God the Father. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Which is interesting because as I hear that, I'm like, it's obviously it's God saying, you know, this is my Son. You need to listen to him. But it's also kind of implying to the disciples that maybe they hadn't been listening to them to him <laughs> up to that point. Um, I have to believe that I mean this obviously you, th- you think about Mount Sinai God speaking from the clouds um, this is a fairly you know it's like if you look back in the Old Testament God would show up in a cloud you know he, mm-hmm. he, he would show up mm-hmm. in a cloud so again this had to in be in the something, New Testament yeah he comes in clouds so this had to be something that resonated with them they didn't have to ask is that God the Father, do you think? Um, <laughs> and you know, like, this always strikes me as like, here's Peter saying, you know what, we should we should attribute to Moses and Elijah, you know, a tent so we can worship them. And it's like God says, I'm coming down there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it's, it's like, hold on, they're going to worship someone other than my son. And all of a sudden, God comes down in a cloud and he's, he doesn't speak to Jesus. He's speaking directly to them. Yeah. Almost to say, no, 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 you don't get it. Like, they may look radiant, but this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Yeah. And when he does that, when he, when he says that, he is, he's pulling from the Old Testament and what was expected to come from the, for the Messiah. So, for example, when Moses wrote about the Messiah, all the people were saying, get God away from us, get God away from us, because we can't be in his presence or we'll die. And 
Moses says, through God speaking to him, says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, referring to Jesus, from among you, from your brothers, and you shall listen to him. And that was a very, very famous Old Testament passage that was referring to the Messiah. You know, you you won't see God in the spirit because you couldn't take it. So God's going to send someone with skin on that you can relate to. And you shall listen to him. And here's God booming out of the, the cloud. This is him. Listen to him. Right. And in Isaiah, it talks about, you know, that this is going to be, you know, the one with whom he's well pleased. And in the Psalms, he's going to be the son. And so when God is booming out of this cloud to the apostles, what he's, he's saying, this is him. Yeah. This is the one. Yeah. And in verse 8, it says, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So after God spoke, it was over. Jesus was the mm-hmm. only one left with them. Um, and as they were coming down the mountain, verse 9, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So this is where I get into a Markism on this. Because I, I, I had to stop and ask myself, why the transfiguration? Why did he do this And for just his three closest disciples? It was, this was the inner circle. He didn't even take all the disciples with him, just Peter, James, and John. Mm-hmm. So he was showing them something and keeping it from everybody else on the planet. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you, Jesus takes you up onto a mountain. You see his glory. You see Moses and Elijah. You hear God saying, would you listen to this man, please? And so then you turn around and come down, and the next thing Jesus said is, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And once again, they're trying to figure out what he means by this raised from the dead business. And I found myself shouting at the verses, (laughs) what is it going to take for you guys? You know, this is like the most extreme. It's like Jesus has done everything he can do. He's done miracles in front of you. He's told you about it over and over again. Now he's taken you up on a mountain, showed himself in his glory, brought down the two greatest prophets, had God come speak to you. And still, when he says, when the Son of Man is raised from the dead, the three disciples start talking amongst themselves. What do you think he means by that? I'm like... (laughs) There's dents, and then there's like neutronium dents. There's like, you know, there's like ultimate dents. There's like these guys just aren't getting it. And quite frankly, they don't really get it until they see him rise from the dead. It makes me wonder if there's, if they're wondering, like their disbelief isn't so much that, you know, okay, Jesus is going to exist on the other side of death. It makes me wonder if they're thinking, like, you know, back in the day, they used to have all kinds of different beliefs about the resurrection. Sadducees flat out rejected the resurrection, but then there were some people who said, you know, that the afterlife wasn't a physical afterlife. It was being drawn into Abraham's bosom and being spiritually alive, but not physically alive. And then there were others that believed in a bodily resurrection. And, you know, maybe if you're being charitable to these guys... (laughs) And again, I think we're being charitable here. Yeah. Um, it might be that they're saying, you know, when Jesus says, don't tell anybody until after the, re- the resurrection, 
that he's saying, I want you to see me with skin on so you understand what I mean. I'm not just coming to give you an escape hatch to some other reality and some other spiritual dimension. I'm telling you that I'm going to redeem the physical world. Um, and there were a lot of Jews that were very opposed to the idea of a physical resurrection because they, you know, the world, the world is yucky. It's corrupt. It's got diseases. And who wants to be here? Uh, and the Greeks absolutely hated the idea of a physical resurrection. They saw the physical world as evil, actually. Um, and so when he says that, it's revolutionary. Like, who wants to have a physical world? Um, and it makes me wonder, is he saying that partly to to say, I want you to understand that I'm not talking about reincarnation or Abraham's bosom. I am coming to restore the physical world. You're going to laugh. You're going to eat. You're going to you're going to dance. You're going to do things with a physical body. And everybody, you know, a lot of people in that world would have said, "Yuck! I don't want a physical body. I went out of this." Yeah. You know. Um, and he's saying, "No, I'm going to make it right. Yeah. I'm going to raise it from the dead." Maybe. I would tell you that after my last two and a half months here, if you said to me, <laughs> "God was going to come back and raise you up in this physical body," I would be like, "No." I would just, no. So it's only because I believe God's going to fix this up before he puts me back in it that I'm okay with that. Um, I understand what they mean when they say, I don't want this physical Mm -hmm. body. It's not Mm -hmm. particularly a good one. Um, You know, that kind of thing. So It's also one of my favorite realizations about the transfiguration. And we talked about this on a previous episode. But the transfiguration is like the photo negative of Calvary. And so if you remember the story of Calvary, think about this. And and if you put all the different narratives of the transfiguration, it goes like this. Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They go to the mountain. They pray. The three of them can't stay awake, and so they're falling asleep, and Jesus is waking them up. Jesus is then transfigured into beauty. His face is shining like the sun. His clothing is beaming white. Um, God's glory is voicing pleasure over him. He's got the two greatest prophets on either side. The, the, the disciples are, you know, wanting to draw near face down like they're in worship and reverence and the father's expressing pleasure in the son and telling everybody to listen to him. And every one of those little details of the transfiguration is turned on its head at the cross where the night that Jesus is arrested, he goes to a mountain to pray. And who does he take with him? He takes Peter, James, and John. And what can they not do? They can't stay awake. They're they're continually falling asleep. And Jesus isn't transfigured into beauty when he's arrested. He's cloaked in the sin of the world, right? He takes our sin upon himself and he becomes gross. And his, his garments aren't shining with glory and you know, radiance, he's stripped naked in shame. His face isn't shining like the sun. In fact, the sun is eclipsed and goes dark. Jesus isn't flanked by the two greatest prophets. He's flanked by thieves, like people that are, you know, the lowest outcasts of society. And the disciples aren't saying, oh my gosh, we need to worship you. They're all running away. And the father's definitely not expressing his pleasure. The father's pouring out his wrath. And rather than saying, listen to him, you have Jesus crying out, why have you forsaken me? Where the father's turning a, a, his face away from Jesus himself. And all of this is, it's like Jesus is showing the apostles, this is who I am. This is what I deserve. 
and I don't want you to talk about this until you see what I get. Um, and it's like he's saying, I'm going to take up the cross and I'm going to walk the road of suffering and I'm going to take all the curses that humanity deserves, but this is who I am and I want you to remember it because this this is the power I have, to have confidence in this. And one day, by the way, this is going to be your reality. Mm-hmm. And that's just awesome. And this is a big deal for Peter and and his second epistle in that opening chapter, when he talks about why he's so bold for the gospel, listen to what he said. He, he said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And he's like, man, I've seen who this guy is. <laughs> I've, I've seen kind of behind the curtain who this guy is, and I'm telling you, He's worth everything in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the disciples then do, Sam, what the disciples do. They change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are good at that. There's three verses here where in verse 11, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Um, I think that's obviously talking about John the Baptist. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because Jesus declared that he was taking up John, Elijah's ministry. Yeah, and Jesus and the other Gospels will say a lot, the coming of John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the prophecy. That's in the very last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, and one of the last verses it says that before the great day comes, when the Messiah comes to bring justice and everything else, that Elijah must come first. And so when you open up the the New Testament and you get into the, the nativity story in the Gospel of Luke, we're told that Gabriel comes to the parents of John the Baptist and he says that their son, John the Baptist, is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then when he's introduced, we're told that he's wearing this you know, garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Well, guess who else dressed like that? Elijah. And right. guess who wandered off into the wilderness? Elijah. You know, And so John the Baptist is carrying out a lot of the same ministry functions, calling people to repentance that Elijah did. And so John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the Elijah who was to come. Right. But it's like they're focused on Elijah, and he says, yeah, yeah, the, the scriptures do talk about that, but they also talk about how the Son of Man has to suffer many things. Let's talk about that part. And every time he tries to to remind them, you know, because he in the previous chapter he says, hey, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, crucified, and I raised from the dead. And Peter's like, I'll never let that happen, and he and Jesus get into it. And every time Jesus tries to prep them that he's got to go to a cross, it's like they're going, la, 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 what about Elijah? You know, <laughs> um, and they refuse to contend with this. Yeah. It is interesting as a student of prophecy to consider that when you read the prophecies in the Old Testament about Elijah has to come, you know, would come again to precede this, that that prophecy wasn't talking about who Elijah was. It was talking about what mm-hmm. Elijah, Elijah was and about his, you know, his mannerisms and his office. So mm-hmm. that's one of the things about prophecies is that they can have multiple fulfillments 
or they can have a fulfillment that you didn't read into it at all, but it's still been fulfilled. Um, it's just, it, it makes prophecy an, an interesting moving target to study sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and by the way, even if even if you couldn't tie the coming of Elijah to John the Baptist, guess what just happened? Elijah came again. <laughs> you know, he was on the yeah. Mount of Transfiguration right yeah. alongside Jesus. So, you know, it's like all bases are covered. But what Jesus says is the ministry of Elijah, the coming of Elijah, again, is found not in Elijah being, you know, remade in human flesh and coming again. But John the Baptist, like you said, carrying out his ministry, the spirit and power of Elijah was upon John the Baptist. So now they've returned to the disciples here in verse 14. They got back to the rest of them. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them, at which point I think (laughs) Jesus applied his right palm to the center of his forehead and said, what is it now? Um it's like it's like he comes back to his disciples and they're fighting with the scribes. Okay, here we go again. Verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Hmm. Verse 20, And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus picks up on that. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father says what I think is one of the most relatable statements in you're going to hear in the New Testament, verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, Let me pause for a second here because there's a bunch of things that have Mm -hmm. been going on. The first thing is that the disciples had problem casting out the unclean spirit. I think, personally, that it was a bit of overconfidence on their part. When they had been sent out to begin spreading the news of the kingdom, He had specifically given them authority to heal and to cast out evil spirits. Um, But that was authority he had given them for that particular mission. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily absolute authority given to them from now on that they could always cast out evil spirits. But I'm sure that they took it that way because of how they acted here. They tried to cast the, the evil spirit out of this boy, and it didn't happen. It was like just a total non-starter. Um Mm -hmm. And again, I think that was overconfidence. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think that they had fallen into some sense of overconfidence where, yeah, Jesus had commissioned us to go out and to do ministry, and he'd given us authority to do all this. But it's like the disciples are surprised that even with that authority, that they still can't do this all by themselves. Um, and one of the things, the the reason why, if if you went into first century 
And what they would have understood about this passage, which we just don't really realize anymore, is one of the reasons that makes this particular demon difficult is he's a demon that causes muteness, where it doesn't talk. And so if you went back and you studied first century exorcisms, or even like if you look at the Catholic Church and you know their exorcism strategies, or even the life of Jesus, one of the first things that they would do when they came up to somebody that was possessed by a demon is to demand or ask that the demon identify itself. What is your name? So, I mean, we've already gone through that earlier in the Gospel of Mark where we encountered the, the guy that was you know, consumed with a bunch of demons. And what's the first question that Jesus asks? What is your name? Well, with a mute demon, they can't respond. And so you can't take that name and have authority over it. And there was a, a belief, a very strong belief, that in order to have authority over somebody else, you have to take possession of their name and then command them by name. But a mute cannot respond to you. The only way that you can gain knowledge of, of the demon's name would be through some supernatural or divine revelation because the mute demon is not going to talk to you. And so they come into this situation where what would be common for casting out a demon where you ask the demon to identify itself means nothing. And so at that point, they've run into this dead end and the first century world's gone, okay, what about a mute demon? How are you going to deal with this? And the disciples are shrugging saying, I don't know. We, we can't, we don't know its name. We can't call it out. We can't command it. Um, and that's one of the themes that runs throughout scripture to, like in the beginning, when Adam is given authority over creation, what does God do with Adam? He says, I want you to name all of the animals. Um, when when we're brought into the kingdom of heaven, we're told we're going to be given a new name. Well, why is that? It's we're being given under the authority of someone else. And to, to take authority over a demon, that was believed that you had to get the demon's name. Hmm. Unless you're Jesus. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, you know, at that point he's like, okay, enough of this. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you, mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Verse 28, And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So as you were saying, you know, this is a situation of praying for a divine revelation or some kind of knowledge that they would need to be able to address the demon, to, to cast him out. Um, it was not something that they could do without having that information unless they were Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus is able to say, you know, hey, you mutant deaf spirit, you know, are there any <laughs> other mutant deaf spirits here? I'm talking to you then. Are you talking to me? You must be talking to me. I don't see anybody else here. Jesus is like, you know, out of him. Um, you know, that's the thing that, you know, no matter what else about Jesus, his innate, just the... the the level of confidence you would have if you if you were spending time around this man. It's one of the reasons why his disciples puzzle me. Um, <laughs> you see him you see him feed thousands of people, calm storms. 
heal people, raise the dead, cast out demon spirits. What exactly are you worried about when you're in his company? You know, if someone comes up and kills me, he can fix it. I, well, you know, if I have no food, he can fix that. It's like his ability to just to be who he is, to be Jesus, to be God, mm-hmm. um, I would think should have given them an enormous sense of self-confidence around them as opposed to whatever it was the disciples had. Um, so that was always kind of puzzling to me. Yeah, but he, he is always surprising them. You know, it's it's you, you don't have exactly this kind of an answer, but it's like okay, if if I if I die, you know, he can raise me. If I'm hungry, he can feed me. But what do I think when he chooses not to? You know, and that's yeah. where faith really gets stretched. It's right. like you know, you you see Mary and Martha when Lazarus has been in the tomb for three days. You know, why didn't you? I don't get it. I know who you are. I know what you're able to do, and you chose not to. Um, and that's where faith rubber really meets the road is when you say okay i know you can but knowing he can isn't enough you have to know that he's good because if he chooses not to that's when you can start doubting him like and that's i think that's where the the apostles are constantly like hey you told us we'd be able to do this and now we're running up into this the scribes are coming after us they're accusing us of being probably false in some way threatening our lives because we're holding ourselves out as these religious figures that and but then we're being proven that we can't follow through this was like this was no small thing when the scribes come and start launching accusations <laughs> At these apostles, it was dangerous for them. And Jesus is, you know, gone on a on a road trip with the inner circle, and now he shows up and you know rescues them at the last minute. But you know, they had to be like, "Where is he? Where is he? What has he done to us? <laughs> you know, why isn't he here? Why is this not working?" Mm. Um, but it's when you're in those situations, pulling back and saying, "You know what? Like nothing is out of his control." And even though I don't know what he's up to, I know he's good. And that's hard. Yeah. That's hard in those moments. There was a, a gospel song years ago. I haven't heard it in a long time, but uh, the chorus of it was, went something to the effect of, when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really is where good. Christians are. That's really where we are as followers of Christ. It's like we've learned that he's good um, and, mm-hmm. that, and that he has, uh, you know, that he has a different picture than we do it's like and it's a perfect picture and everything is going to be fixed finished redeemed perfectly um Mm -hmm. and then we just we learn to trust that um it is not an easy thing um and yet at the same time it's the easiest thing uh so that's and and you think well mark you're talking out of both sides of your mouth but to be able to accept that when something goes wrong and jesus doesn't step in he is still good is a difficult thing. Um, you know, what's going on with your mom? What's going on mm-hmm. with my dad? You want, you know, I mean, I, hey, dad tells me he prays every night for God to take him home. So that's how I'm praying too. Lord, yeah. take him, take him gently tonight. Take him home. Take him home tonight. And yet he doesn't. And I, and I find myself, why, God? Why? Why, why aren't you? You know, he's he's 87. He's not getting any better. Um, you know, things are failing on him left and right. Lord, why don't you take him home? And yet, I've had this time, this walk with him, where I have seen time and time again that something that made no sense at the time that it happened 
10 years down the road, I see, oh, that's what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, it, and sometimes, and let me be honest, sometimes you don't even get that answer. But mm-hmm. I've had enough times where down the road, a number of years, I've seen the answer that I know that even when I don't get to see the answer, there was one. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes easy. It's that old Garth Brooks song, you know, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And there's no real unanswered prayer. God always gives an answer. It might not be the one you like, but the the sentiment behind that song is really true. Like, I mean, if I got what I wanted, my life would be a disaster. Um, and God God knows better, and he loves us enough to give us better than we can imagine. Yeah. Um, and and one of the other things is, and this is this is a little bit of a, a morbid thought, but it's really true, is there's no person on earth who's not dead in their sins and trespasses, right? That's that's apart from Christ. We're in bodies that are falling apart. We're in a world that is that is fallen and sad and mournful. And death is the vehicle by which we're liberated and transported into glory. Um, it's not consummated yet. It's not the new heavens and the new earth. But it's God's mercy that would draw us into that. You know, I look at my mom and I see, um, you know, a, a lot of things in her body beginning to fail. Um, things that are humiliating, things that are that are hard. And, you know, you look at her and she's just, she's ready to go. And it would be purely the mercy of God to take her at this point. Um, and... You know, it's it's in the moments where everything gets raw and humanity and health and everything else are out there that you really begin to see the little mercies, you know, just the, the little conversations, you know, like she was embarrassed about some of the things that her body is going through right now. And just to be able to pause and have a conversation with her about, you know, mom, you're a you are a soul with a body. You're not a body with a soul. And we love the soul, and that's going to go on forever. All of our bodies are failing. All of the things in this world are ultimately passing away, but we worship one who's come to make all things new. And the stuff that, you know, two years ago we were praying would be restored is ultimately going to perish no matter what, and that's a good thing. Like you said, I wouldn't want to go around in this body with this sinful world forever. No. You know? It's it's merciful that he strips these things away from us because he's got a far better reality in store for us. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, – you know, my wife years ago, uh, she was talking about her own parents passing and things that she went through with them. And she said something to me that I've never forgotten. She said, you know, maybe what God's doing is not about them. It's about you. It's about mm-hmm. you learning to be merciful you learning to be gracious and to care, you learning to be God with skin on, to minister to them, that's what this is about. You know, God is is shaping you, not necessarily them. Mm. And I thought, you know, that's true. We always think about it in terms of the, of the one who is suffering, but God may be using a difficult situation to do something in the lives of the people that are caring for this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's... A difficult thing to think of. Uh, sometimes you're like, Lord, they're suffering. I don't want to watch this anymore. And he's like, I know suffering. I understand suffering. And, you know, you'll get through this <laughs> and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, it is, it is a uh, 
it is one of those things that I do find myself thinking that it would be great if everything just tied up with a little bow easily, if God did everything in ways that we understood. Um, but then when I start to think about just exactly how big the picture is, I mean, I'm, I have a, a, a circle of acquaintances that's not very deep. I have people that I know, like, peripherally. Not that, it's like, I just don't know a lot of people. I don't have a very big circle. And I'm thinking, God has everybody in mind. Hmm. You know, he's got the whole world in his mind as he's doing these things. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> we need to maybe not decide that we can decide what, what makes sense and doesn't make sense. Yeah, and the, the the strange thing here, and this this is a Samism. So you have your Markisms. You got a Samism coming in. Okay. Here's my Samism, and it, it's almost like you know God doesn't want you to pity him. But what basically what's going on with the disciples is they're coming to God and they're saying, "Hey, like you failed us. We couldn't cast out this demon, and why couldn't we cast it out? You said we would be able to." And when he responds back, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer it's not just because this was a mute demon it's because like your your ministry is fueled by the power of prayer like behind the entire substance of your ministry is your intimacy with god himself and get what's going on here you have the disciples who are saying hey you you didn't show up What's going on? And he's saying, oh, well, this kind can't be cast out by anything but prayer, which means if you were praying, this would have been done. So guess what they weren't doing? <laughs> you know, you know. here you have the disciples that are running around trying to do all this ministry. They're getting caught up in theological squabbles, and they're talking to anybody and everybody except God. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that's such a, a familiar thing in ministry where, you know, I love what Alpha says, that it's designed to fail without prayer. Because um, what we can do is we can come up with a system, and we can buy the meals, and we could show the videos, and we can, you know, roll out this routine. And it's like, you know, you pull the lever, and you expect salvations. And Jesus is like, you know, if if you're doing that, and you're not praying, you're not seeking to plug in to intimately with relationship with the power and and the, and the God who's seeking to save these people. You're leaving the most important element of ministry on the table, and so. You know, the funny thing is the disciples are saying, I feel forsaken by God. And God, you know, here you have Jesus saying, oh, yeah, well, if you'd have just been, if you'd have sought the Lord, this would have been no problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's ironic. Yeah. You know. I talked about that in the study notes this week. I said, you know, when, when a new ministry or a new endeavor or program or whatever starts out, people start praying about it before it ever happens, pray for it sometimes long in advance. And the whole thing is bathed in prayer, you know. You, you pray every day. You pray before you engage in it. You pray while you're doing it. You pray afterwards. It's like it's just prayer is everywhere when something is new. But as it goes on longer and as you become more familiar with it and it becomes muscle memory and habit, prayer is the first thing that gets left behind. It's like, mm. I don't need to pray anymore. I know where all the bagels are kept. I don't need to pray. I know where the videos are, <laughs> you yeah. know. And so you just jump into it and you do it without giving it really any thought. And when that begins, when when that mantle of breath, you know, when that bathing the whole thing in prayer drops, that's when the failure sets in. Um, I've, I have seen it personally myself. Mm -hmm. Sure, in many different ministry operations over the years, um, things that were 
prayed over ceaselessly and powerfully become things that get done by habit and rote. And they mm-hmm. become things then that you're not praying over it and it falls apart. Um, you think we learn from that, but we don't. Um, but I think that that's the message here, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I don't care how easy you think this is. You need to be praying about it. Mm-hmm. So. And it makes you wonder, like, if the disciples at that moment went, oh, yeah, prayer, you know. It's like we're talking about the 12 apostles, and they had not even considered prayer as an option. Yeah. Which just goes to show, like, the more things change. I mean, this this is the, you know, the, the, the starter kit for the, for the church, and they struggled with that, too. Yeah. Think about it. How many times does it say they went looking for Jesus and found him off by himself in prayer? Mm-hmm. How many times does it say Jesus went looking for them and found the disciples off by themselves in prayer? Can't think of a one. <laughs> yeah, you'd be looking for a long time there. Yeah, so, so verse thirty. Um, these three verses. I, you know, I actually didn't even mention these in study notes. Did you read them? But I didn't even mention it in personal worship this week because I felt like I was really starting to pile on those poor guys. Um, verse thirty. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I think by that point, even the disciples were like, He keeps saying this to us. <laughs> Peter, do you want to ask him? Peter's like, Nope, I'm out. You know, I'm done. You know, it's like they were – they're not even going to bring it up anymore. <laughs> it's not going to be anymore. There's no more questions for him. No more rebukes. No more questions. It's just like, okay, Jesus, whatever you say. <laughs> it reminds me of being in like Algebra 2 or Calculus where you're asking the teacher because you don't understand and they've explained it three times and they say, do you get it now? And you're like, oh, oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. We, we get it. <laughs> they have no idea. Yeah. You're just, at that point, you're hoping the final exam is multiple choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in reality, like, if you if you were a great student of the Old Testament and you're reading, that, you know, that the Messiah is going to bring about a kingdom of everlasting justice and he's going to, to bring, pour out wrath upon the enemies of God and he is going to sit on the throne of David forever and you're reading all of these prophecies and then you have the Messiah, right? saying uh, he's going to be killed and he's after three days he's going to rise like you've got to be going i don't understand like how's that going to work um how how does he claim these things if he's going to to be killed and risen and ascending and like you it would have been to give them the benefit of the doubt like jesus is saying it pretty plainly but you also have these Old Testament scriptures that until you see the story entirely played out, you have to be going, how's that going to work? Um, and so they're like, uh-huh, okay, yep, all yep. right, let's let's go conquer Rome. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Um, and, and so we do have to have some sympathy for them because they'd been taught their whole lives what to expect when the Messiah would come. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't it. Yeah, no. This wasn't what they'd been taught. Um, now, that's because the teaching was deficient because, mm-hmm. you know, we've spent enough time going through Isaiah and other books like that, that it was prophesied in the Old mm-hmm. Testament that the that 
the Messiah would suffer. So that's not going to be, you know, they were they were reading the parts they liked uh, yeah. when they were teaching them about what Messiah was going to do. And we still do that today. Yes, that's true. We we teach the parts we like. That's true. <laughs> that is true. So now verse 33 reads, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Now, I'm going to tell you, this is one of those situations where Jesus asks the question that he knows the answer to. So he's given them a chance <laughs> to confess. <laughs> verse 34, But they kept silent. Why? For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Verse 35, and he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, and I imagine right at that point, they all looked at each other like, who told him? Who who ratted us out? Who said something? Which one of you said something to him? You know, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Hmm. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. I did find I did find interesting that um, one online forum I was looking at was like, where did you get a child? I'm like, it just said he entered a house. He was staying with some family. <laughs> I mean, how hard is that? There were children there. He just brought one of the children in to say something. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. So in that moment, Jesus takes this whole system of how do we figure out who's going to be the top dog? How does the alpha dog become the alpha dog? And he absolutely turns it on its ear. Mm -hmm. In the kingdom of God, what you think you know about becoming important, you don't know. Mm -hmm. And when he takes a child... And way more than than today's culture in first century Israel, a child was more like property. You know, they 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 couldn't help you at all. They were, you know, they they had nothing that they could give you. They were just essentially, you know, someone's child. They stayed quiet. They didn't have any authority back in those days. And what he's saying is, here's somebody who cannot help you in the slightest. He's not going to advance your cause. In fact, if you take him, he's probably going to cost you something. Yeah. If you if you grab hold of those that can't help you and you serve them, that is the sign that you're great in my kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so what what does he say? He says, "Okay, if you exalt those that are less than you, then you get me." And the one who sent me. And so it's like he's, you know, looking at the pecking order of the economic roles of salvation. He's like, okay, God the Father sent me. I'm sending you to go out to people who are like little children. And if you get a child, you get me and you get God the Father. Um, but you want to you know how you climb up to God the Father? It's by climbing down to the children yeah. and the slaves and the poor and the orphan and the widow. And, and that's, that was revolutionary at the time. Sure. Uh, you, you read ancient Roman writings and Greek philosophers, humility was not considered a virtue in the ancient world. Modesty was, but humility wasn't. It was seen as weakness. You, you never, ever, humility is a bad thing. Uh, that's something that's pretty novel with Christianity, where you take those lesser than you and you take care of them. It's yeah. radically different than the world that they lived in back then. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very true. 
Um, and I also think that, you know, over the last few years, you and I have seen one, you know, pastor and ministry leader after another implode on the front pages and go down in flame. It's been, you know, I'm not going to list names. You guys can, you guys know the names I'm talking about. Big churches, big, big ministries. Mm-hmm. It's like entire denominations that have shameful things come out about them. It's not been a good year. No. Or so, or two, or three, or five, or ten. I'm getting really tired of it. (laughs) Yeah. It's not been a good time for the church in this world. Um, And I look at all of these ministries and these pastors and everything else, and some of them were ones that we had known about for a long time. And they had started very different. They had started very humbly. They had started where the person that was that person in front, you just knew they didn't think that there was anything super special about them. you know. And you can kind of imagine that in those situations, they were, as it said, last of all, being the servant of all. Um, and something changes along the way. There's some point along the way where that flips in people it's it's a base instinct in our humanity we you know humility is given to us basically by god because without god we're not humble we're just not um and so somewhere along the way it would change for them and you know they began to believe their own press releases you know, they began to believe that the crowds that surrounded them meant something about them, that they were somehow better and special. And so they became self-indulgent, satisfying their own appetites, you know, forgetting about everything that they were supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And then they'd fall. And so I really find myself thinking, you know, as I, as I think about that, I find myself thinking there is – you know, when you when you're looking at a successful ministry, it's one in which the leaders never lose the perspective that that I'm here to be servant of all. Mm-hmm. And you see that play out through the entirety of Scripture. Anytime somebody is small in their own eyes, the Lord uses them mightily. And the moment that they become proud and think, "Oh, this is my show." They implode, and they usually take a lot of other victims with them. Um, I think right away of, of of King Saul, who was the very first king anointed over all of Israel, and when God comes and removes that anointing from him, and is essentially he's going to die as king and be replaced by King David. But when he sends the prophet Samuel to confront him, the first words are, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Although you were once small in your own eyes, and then he begins the rebuke. And what he's saying to Samuel is like, man, when you were small, when you were humble, when you felt, you know, remember when when I came to anoint you as king and you were hiding because you felt unworthy? Like, that was a guy that I could use. But now that you're proud and that's the Saul show, you're destroying everything. Or you think of Moses when he's a prince at, at 40 and he feels like he can you know, do everything on his own and he ends up killing the Egyptian. God throws him out as a shepherd for another 40 years out in the wilderness to humble him. And then when he's thoroughly humbled, God uses him to deliver an entire nation. God tends to use the humble to do great things. 
but the proud wreck the kingdom of God. They're, they're, they destroy it. And so we've, we've talked about this ad nauseum with how celebrity pastors are just absolutely antithetical to the gospel, and they inevitably implode because there's not a person on the planet who can withstand that kind of ministry pressure. Right. It will it will devour anyone. Right. You know, and we as as people, as human beings, we're indoctrinated. Hey, you're supposed to, you know, praise your favorite movie star, lift up your favorite athlete, think that they're better than everybody else, put them on a pedestal, you know, worship these people almost. And so why not your pastor? Well, because <laughs> what you're doing is you're giving your pastor an opportunity to believe that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's we talked about leaven last week being that poison that comes in and comes in with just a small amount but eventually poisons everything. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. It's leaven. We've talked before about, we, we don't actually know how many people listen to this podcast because when we started it, we didn't think to add metrics. Right. And I can't tell you how many times I've thought, I'm so glad that we don't know. <laughs> because if it were not enough, I would think, oh, you know, me, 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 me. And I would I would be a pity party and I would wonder, like, is it because of, you know. And if it were a whole bunch, then I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's the Sam show. Like, <laughs> human nature. Yeah can't help but fall into one of those two camps. And so by not even being able to know, <laughs> it makes it a far healthier experience. I would be a horrible celebrity pastor. Yeah, yeah, well, yes, you would. <laughs> um, you know, and, and with the respect to the podcast, you know, we hear from people all the time about how much they enjoy the podcast. And what what gives me cheer is what a disparate crowd it is. Mm-hmm. There are older people that love the podcast. There's young people that love the podcast. There's people that are, you know, all in all spectrums of age and occupation and gender and the whole nine words, whole nine yards. I really like the fact that our podcast has a very diverse audience because it makes me think that maybe, you know, that it, that it's, that it's reaching the people that it should reach, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the opportunity for us to do. You know, a lot of in-depth study of the passages that we don't have time to spend time on on Sunday morning. Um, I really like that. I think the people like it. Uh, so, yeah, I feel the same as you. There are days where I'm like, you know, I should have thought that at some point somebody was going to ask me how many people are listening and done it differently with the tracking metrics and so forth. Um, but unfortunately, I'm old. And I started building <laughs> podcasts by hand back in like 2003. And when that was back in the day when they weren't called podcasts, they were RSS feed with audio attachments. And I was doing all that stuff by hand. And so I just always kept doing it by hand. I never used any of these services that embed all this tracking information. And I just never did. And so it, it bit us this time. I'm like, yeah, I, how many people listen? I have no idea. <laughs> hmm. You know, <clears throat> but you're right. It's probably a good thing. It's definitely a good thing. So we come to verse 38, and now we have an odd occurrence. Um, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Implication is going to be that it was successful, I think. Um, And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. What an odd thing for for John Mm -hmm. to do. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. 
for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Um, what was what was interesting to me, or what seemed odd to me, was I would think that, you know, looking around themselves and being like, hey, you know, we're like 12 guys against the world, basically. Um, you would think that John would be happy to see people out there, you know, doing the same thing, you know, like doing mighty works in the name of Jesus. And yet he wasn't. He's like, they're not, he's not, they're not following us. You know, they're, they're not part of our church. They don't, they don't do communion and baptism the way that we do. They don't, they don't look like us. They don't worship like us. They jump around when they worship or they sit still when they <laughs> worship. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know Jesus. And Jesus is pretty clear. Like, no, don't stop him, you know, embrace him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can remember, like, on my path to Presbyterianism, I've been through a number of different denominations. Um, and so I've seen stylistic things that I look at and go, uh, that's not my style, or, or doctrinal things that are a little bit odd. But at the core of it, as you know, they all love Jesus and they all believed that he was the only way to salvation. They, they loved him. Um, and even now, like, you'll hear some people in the church that get really uh, – you'll sense animosity toward other believers who believe the wrong things, you know, where, you know, some people will have it out for the charismatics, other people will have it out for the Calvinist, other people will have it out for, you know – and we're we're really good sometimes in the church at having a fire you know circular firing squad you know <laughs> where where we we yeah. take each other out and the reality is man there's a lot of other denominations who do things that I just I don't think are correct you know minor things on the essentials of the gospel they get it right and we need to be cheering each other on you know in Broward County we started something called Church United um, gosh, within the past decade, it's been a number of years, and here recently it's caught on, where pastors from all different denominations and, and theological convictions are coming together, but we believe the core essentials of the gospel, and we're blessing each other, you know, and really working with each other and trying to get the church unified rather than it being, you know, like John's attitude here, which was, you know, you can't have a legitimate ministry unless you're following our team. Um, Jesus is like, hey, no, no, no. Let them, you know, if they're working mighty works for the name of God, they're for us, you know. They're not, they're definitely not against us. Right. And so let's cheer them on. And, you know, we could stand to be far more gracious and patient with our brothers and sisters of different convictions, if, yeah. you know, especially if they're holding to all the same essentials that we hold. Right. If somebody's out there saying that, you know, Jesus wasn't really the Son of God, or right. that the cross isn't the old, you know isn't isn't the complete payment for sin, or you know salvation isn't by grace through faith. If they're like, no, no, you got to do stuff too. Um, those kinds of things. I think that you should stay away from that, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, but when when you're together on the essentials of the gospel on that orthodoxy, and you're together on most things that would not generally violate orthodoxy. Um, I think that it's great when the churches cooperate together. I love seeing what goes on with Church United. It's fabulous. 
Mm-hmm. I love it. And I think, you know, St. Augustine, who was way back in the 5th century, probably the greatest person outside of the apostles and Jesus for the church, um, he had this great line, and it sums it up, and I love it. He says, in essentials, so like the core of the gospel and the things that you have to believe to be a Christian, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and right. all things, charity. Yeah. And so breaking it down in those three ways, like you're talking about, and the essentials things, we have to have unity. Like if if you violate the essentials, you're out of the you know kingdom, right? And non-essentials, like whether you're wearing robes or you know the gifts or all that kind of stuff, man, liberty. But in all things, even essential, non-essential, in all things, you have to love right. people. If, if there's somebody that you say, based on their credible confession, I think I'm going to see this person in heaven, then they're on your team. Same team, mm-hmm. Team Jesus. You know. So verse 42, we come to the, the last thing in, the end, in this chapter. Um, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So what I really enjoyed about this in study notes this week was the word that's being used here for hell is Gehenna. And so I got to talk to people about what Gehenna was because it was a place. Mm-hmm. It was this narrow cleft outside the city of Jerusalem. It was the Valley of Hinnom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has never been used for a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> there was child sacrifice in there. There were all kinds of terrible things done in there. It had never been used for a good thing. But in the time of Jesus, it was special. It's where they threw all of their sewage and uh, refuse, all the garbage from the city, and they set it on fire so that stuff would burn up. Mm-hmm. And it never went out. It burned constantly. It was like a river of shifting flame. But up toward the top, where it was a little bit cooler, there were worms and maggots everywhere. So when you came up to it, you would see this surface of worms and maggots and nasty smell and stuff. And just below that, it was like, 800 degrees <laughs> or 1,000 degrees or something like that. <laughs> and so that's the image Jesus wanted them to have. Obviously, mm-hmm. Jesus is saying there is nothing more important than to deal with the question of where you will go after you die. Um, but he does that in an interesting way by saying if your hand offends you, if your foot offends you, if your eye offends you, you know, cut them off, pluck it out. Um, obviously, Jesus is not actually saying that we should maim ourselves. It's figurative language. But it seems like, is it just that he's saying, 
you just don't want to let anything come between you and this question? Is that mm-hmm. why he says it that way? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a number of things. Like if you sit and you you ponder this for a while, uh, one is anything that comes between you and Jesus, get rid of it. But the stunning thing is usually it's you know if, if you know how does how is your hand causing you to sin? You know, we've already been through this, right? It's not the external stuff that causes you to sin; it's what's inside. And so you have to stop and think: How would my hand cause me to sin? I'm, I'm trying to. F- Imagine that, really. Like, I have no idea how my hand would cause me to sin or my feet. How would that? I mean, with eye, you could say, you know, lust or something like that. I would, say that G- I would say that my hand is what I used to commit most of the sins. My yeah. feet were what I used to carry myself to the place where I committed sins. And then, like you say, the eye would be how I lust after things. So I think that all of them sort of have a part to play in, in your sin. Sure, they have a part to play, but notice what Jesus is saying there. He's saying if it causes you to sin. That's true. And and it requires you to stop and go, well, my hand doesn't cause me to. What does cause me to? It's my heart. It, we're back at this, this this reality that, you know, my hand, my foot, my eye, none of that causes me to sin. It's my heart. And if if you've got to cut off your hand and cut off your feet and gouge out your eyes, what is Jesus telling you to do? If, if it's your very heart, your very essence, it's your sinful nature that's causing you to sin, guess what? You got to carve that out too. It's just, you know, that's one of the, one of the things that he's, he's talking about the intensity of sin. And if you're going to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, like, let me tell you how serious that is to me. It would be better if, a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea than if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And then he's like, okay, I've just explained how serious sin is to me because we hear that and go, whoa, millstones, massive rock. You're not coming back up. <laughs> you know, you're not going to struggle against that one successfully for sure. Yeah. So then he says, okay, let me, let me tell you how seriously I want you to treat sin. If your hand causes, would you cut off your hand? Everybody goes, oh, that's that's totally figurative. You should never do that. Jesus is saying, if your hand caused you to sin, which it doesn't, cut it off. If your foot caused you to sin, you'd be better to cut it off. If your eye caused you to sin, you'd be better to gouge it out. That's how seriously destructive sin is. But here's the reality. It doesn't cause you to sin. What causes you to sin is your very heart. And so you have to die. All of you. Your very essence, your nature needs to die and be remade. And that's when I'm thinking about this. Like he doesn't – he's not coming to that conclusion in the text like where he says, okay, and therefore your heart, like it doesn't get there, but it's talking about you. Um, you know, you've got a destiny and it's not determined by your hands and your eyes and your outward behavior. It's determined by your heart. But I, th- I think that's what he's getting at here. Um, you need to take sin very seriously. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the source of sin is not your hand. He's not telling you to cut off your hand because you don't sin because of your hand or your eye or your foot. You sin because of your heart. And so how do you cut that out? You've got to die to self. It's You've got to take up your cross. You've got to figure out another source of life. Hmm. It is something that each of us needs to deal with and not... Uh, and not put off, put off. You know, um, today is the day of salvation. You know, mm-hmm. 
you don't, you know, tomorrow is not guaranteed to us. Tomorrow we could find ourselves, you know, stepping through the worms and into the hot lava. Um, as hard as that is to think about, it's just, that's what Jesus is telling you here. He's like, hey, you don't want to go to Gehenna. Uh, is that literally what it's, you know, it's going to be punishment. Let's put it that way. You yeah. don't, you don't want to do that. Um, hey. and interestingly enough, this gets us to the thing of, you know, like you and I have talked about many times, the Pendulette thing, where this, uh, magician mm-hmm. comedian, uh, once talked about a guy who had given him a New Testament after the show. He'd come up and given it to them and told him he was praying for him. And Penn is a devout atheist. <laughs> it's like he does not mm-hmm. want any part of this. And yet he accepted that from the guy. You know, he just took it humbly. He didn't, you know, because his thought was how much, if you really believe this is true, how much would you have to hate someone mm-hmm. to not tell them about it? It's a sobering reality. Yeah. He respected that that man thought enough of him to say, I believe this is true. And so I want to tell you about it. And it, did it change Pendulette? No. But you see his understanding, his innate understanding that if this is true, if we believe this is true and we believe it for ourselves, how could you not want to tell people that you love or like or even don't hate you know i mean maybe there's that person out there that goes you're gonna burn all right you know maybe that's the (laughs) case but man you got to go way down the list to find somebody like that in my world so why would i not want to tell them this Mm -hmm. so in verse 49 and verse 50 when he says everyone will be salted with fire what he's saying is everybody's going to come across this this idea, you know, trials by fire. You're going to there's God is going to sprinkle fire on you, and then he turns and he says, "Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how can you make it salty again?" And then he concludes with this: He says, "Have salt in inside yourselves, and be at peace with one another." And and that to us, it's like, you know, what in the world is this talking about? But in the ancient world, and in first century, they would have known this because they were still doing sacrifices. When you threw a sacrifice on the altar, you would sp- you would cover it with salt, and you would massage salt through the meat at- before it would burn. And the idea behind that is salt will make the flames go away. And you know, we are not responsible for anybody who tries this at home. But I used to do this for my students, where I took a, a paper towel and I put it on the desk. And I said, I'm going to just sprinkle salt all over this paper towel, and except for the edges, and then I'm going to light the edge, and you watch the fire just race. And as soon as it gets to where the salt is touching the paper towel, it will not burn. It, it stops. It's like hard stop, border, and then the fire singes and goes out. And I think what the Lord is saying here is, hey, fire's coming for everyone, if you want to not be consumed, make sure that you have salt in yourselves. Make sure that you have the thing in you that's not susceptible to the fire. And what is that? I would argue that the gospel where he Jesus tells us that we're transformed into the light of the world and the salt of the earth, like to have salt in yourselves. 
that was also referring to the covenant. To have the covenant in mm-hmm. your heart means that you will not be consumed by the fires. And so, you know, he goes at the beginning of this. It's a, it's a really kind of confusing passage because it's like, whoa, this is a lot of really intense language. He's not saying to cut off your hand or your foot or your eye. He's saying put salt in your heart because it's rotting. You need salt in yourselves, inside yourselves, so that when the fire comes, it will be preserved. It'll be purified. Um, that's the way I read this, but it's a it's a difficult passage. I th- I do think that you're right. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, there's a judgment by fire uh, where you're where the, the things that you've done are judged. We talked. We've read that in First Corinthians. Um, so you know, there's going to be judgment by fire in many different areas, um, and. To have ourselves preserved mm-hmm. by that salt, um, and you notice he's not saying put salt on your hands, no, no. <laughs> or your feet or your eyes. He's not. You know, it's he's not worried about those things and the judgment. He's saying have salt in yourselves because it's the heart that will face the judgment. Yeah. Well, that's a good word, and it's one that we're going to have to end on. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you, that you've enjoyed going through Mark chapter 9 in this first of the messages on the mission of Jesus. Uh, this is part of our ongoing series in the Gospel of Mark. If you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or in the free Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available for iOS or Android. We'll be back next week with another in our series on the Gospel of Mark, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.